The Better Samaritan podcast, where we're learning how to love our neighbors well in a world filled with injustice and pain. Join me, Kent Annan, and Jamie Aiton, my co-host and colleague at the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, as we interview experts with insight on learning to do good better. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. If we lay our love for our brothers deep into our hearts and treasure this way of living, then the result of that action will be timely and bountiful. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered. This sermon was originally titled, A Model of Christian Charity, but it's remembered for the line, A City on a Hill, and so a lot of times it's referenced as the City on the Hill sermon. It was preached in Southampton, England, before the Puritans embarked for Boston. Jill, we talked about John Winthrop and mentioned this very sermon in our episode of Revive Thoughts Deep Dives on the Salem Witch Trials. I said we'd like to have it for a sermon on the show, and here it is, and I can't think of a better time than as we're coming up on Independence Day in the United States of America to talk about this episode. Of course, you might be listening to this at a different time, and we still hope you enjoy it all the same. This sermon itself, before we actually get into the backstory of John Winthrop, the sermon actually has a bit of a backstory too. It was uh, preached, and it was important when it preached, but supposedly, and I want to say supposedly because I, in my own research, did not, not sure if this is true, but the idea is it kind of got forgotten. And then the Massachusetts Historical Society published it in the 1800s, but it kind of still lay dormant. And then what really propelled this sermon, and especially this line, City on a Hill, into fame as we know it today as something that America is sometimes called, uh, was John F. Kennedy was giving a speech during uh, the Cold War, 1961. He mentions this story of John Winthrop talking about this and calling America a city on a hill. And from there, uh, President Reagan used it as well, and others used it. And it just became one of these you know, political terms that's used a lot. And uh, we know we have listeners that are not from the United States of America, who maybe are going, okay, you know, this is not as uh, it's going to affect me as much. But then again, we listen to sermons from Scotland and Ireland and all over the place too. And it's, it's interesting how this sermon and the idea of these people leaving to start a new world, this is the sermon that they're going to, the last thing they're going to hear before they leave Europe. It's interesting that this is what they chose to put in their head in that moment, because in my mind, it's actually not what I would have expected. Yeah. John Winthrop, he, who preached this sermon, he was born in 1587. Not much is known about his earlier life. We know that he attended Trinity College for a short time and would study law at Gray's Inn. In the 1620s, he was a lawyer that served in the London courts, and he also has kind of a unique history of wives. Yeah. And, you know, it's not supposed to be a joke in the sense of, like, it's one of two ways you could read this. This is very sad. This poor guy had just so many wives died, but it just, it kind of just ever so slightly came off funny to me because just of how many he had. And it just, the whole thing is a little strange. So I'm going to read it to you. Um, life and marriage used to be pretty different back then. And it, we, we, you know, we can't judge too harsh with the modern lens of, you know, going back, but he gets married in 1605 to Mary fourth. They have six children, six or five children together. It was, there was different sources and on that. Uh, she dies in June of 1615. Six months later, in December of 1615, he marries again. Uh, this woman named Thomasine Clopton, and uh, she dies about a year and a half later or so in 1616. Uh, then in 1618, he marries Margaret Tyndall, and they have six kids together, and they go to the New World together, but she dies in 1647. 
This would be his longest lasting marriage. It was almost 30 years. Uh, six months later, he marries another widow, but he actually dies before their only son gets born. I don't know that there's a message here. And I, look, I'm not trying to make fun of this guy because he's wiser dying. It's very tragic and sad. But just it, to me, the part that stood out, it was always like six months later, he had another wife. What? That part was just a little like, wait, what? What what caused the death of a lot of these wives? I, from what I can tell, uh, murder. No, uh, from what I can tell, <laughs> um, they were sick and there was a disease. And, you know, back in those days, especially sure. I know that Thomasine Clopton, she was never... Um, she was not even the most healthy person to begin with. Sure, sure. How many, did you add those kids up? How many kids did he have? Yeah, he had about 12 or 13, but, and we'll get into this in a little bit, not all of them made it to adulthood. John Winthrop, uh, he was a Puritan who believed that the Church of England was too corrupt by Catholic rituals and that the true church couldn't flourish there in England. He asked the king for a charter to set up a colony and the, the king assumed it was just a commercial colony that he wouldn't wanted to go there and set up a commercial colony. But Winthrop was kind of secretly, I don't know if secretly, but definitely not making his attentions clear that he wanted to set up a religious colony there. Winthrop and the other Puritans wanted to set out and, and start a new colony that would allow themselves to set apart from the rest of the world. Now, this was not just an ideal idea. They genuinely believed that God was going to punish England for her heresies. We talked a lot about the idea of their thoughts on the end times approaching in our episode on the Salem Witch Trials, and this kind of fits that that uh, thought process. And they get on several boats, uh, and they set sail for the new world. They're leaving England behind the heresies and stuff. They don't want to deal with it anymore. They, they're being persecuted, by the way, at this time, too. And like I said, they are, like Joel said, they think the end of the world is coming. If they stay here, it's going to go poorly for them. Winthrop loses a child on this passage to the New World. And and actually, Winthrop, um, he had two other children, uh, these, these by Mary Fourth, and they also died too. And so he was familiar with loss uh, between the many lives, the wives that he lost and uh, the children that he also lost. Death was something uh, he suffered a lot of, and I think a lot of these people that did. And yet they set out for this place that they knew was dangerous. They had heard the stories of how it went for the pilgrims and how many of them had died trying to set up a home in this new land. And yet they still looked around and said, better to be out there where I might die, where I might lose my family, where we could all easily not make it than to stay here and basically just wait for God's wrath. Now they arrive in Salem, but Salem is too small. And so they kind of spread out through Massachusetts. He'll end up kind of making the capital of Boston. Uh, they're not the only ones that come. This happened during a time period called the Puritan migration from about 1620 to 1640. Tens of thousands come over to America as fast as they can. Winthrop became the governor of the Massachusetts colony, and it was the religious colony that they wanted. On the one hand, Winthrop uh, ended up being the much less extreme of all the Puritan governors. He executed and banished less people than the others, but it was still something that he did, most famously uh, the banishment of Anne Hutchinson, who was excommunicated after a trial. Uh, he calls her the American Jezebel. And some say that she was banished because she didn't accept the moral laws of the Puritans. Others say that it was because she was preaching and teaching men and challenging the gender roles. Either way, that's definitely something that you wouldn't see get uh, convicted in a modern court. Yeah, you're not kicked out of Florida for, for that these right. days. It's a definitely a different world. Uh, then there is the trouble of race relations. He he got along pretty well with uh, Native Americans. Most standards to, would say that he did, especially for his day. But they did build and take the land of Native Americans. They saw any land that was not 
currently under use as free game. And a lot of the Native Americans didn't set up permanent settlements uh, the way that, say, especially not the way that Europeans did. And they would kind of move from one spot to another seasonally. So if you took a lake over and kind of controlled that lake because nobody was there, but those people came in during the winter to fish or something, you can see how this would be a problem and definitely a misunderstanding for sure. And some people would say just stealing it. Uh, he also prayed, this is a bad one, but he also praised God and said God was clearing the land from the heathens when a group of uh, 300 Native Americans got smallpox and dwindled down to 50. But also the Puritans helped care for, he sent them over to care for and help those 50 survive, get medicine and, and not get sicker. So it, it's not a completely clear cut thing. Uh, him. He's a little bit more complex than just one way or the other. Winthrop had a great relationship uh, with one tribe of Native Americans. I'm not going to say this name properly, but the Narragansetts, maybe. Uh, But that seems to be because they allied and tag-teamed with him against the Piquayots, and they pretty much wiped them out. After that war, they took the survivors and shipped them to the West Indies, and he kept some of them as slaves, which was legal in Massachusetts at that time. And, you know, not to justify, but that was a pretty solid British way of doing things at that time. So it was definitely a byproduct of that age. Um, This is dark stuff for a governor. It was a, it was common practice in those times, but for us today, it's hard to imagine doing things that way. It's really hard for us to imagine doing things in the way people did things a lot of a lot of the ways they did it 400 years ago. We talk a lot about you know how rough a lot of those earlier colonial days are. A lot of the people, I mean, we're looking at half the population dying in the first couple of years just through droughts and and not getting enough food. It's around this time that we see Harvard and many other great institutions that are just in the very beginning. They're just getting set up. And so he enforced this rule that fathers had to make sure that their kids in their homes could read and they had teachers that would teach in the communities that would be publicly funded, which was a brand new concept. But he was very convinced that in order for culture to succeed, it had to be united and brought up in a way that people were unified in their understanding and education or the colony would would fail at their goal. There were some, though, that did have issues with Winthrop and the way he ran the colony and they did separate and go to eventually start Connecticut due to the issues that they had with Winthrop. This episode is brought to you by the Better Samaritan podcast with hosts Ken Annan and Jamie Aiden. The whole idea is we're looking at how do we do good better. The Good Samaritan helped out along the road, but then in Dr. Martin Luther King's sermon, he talked about how we want to also figure out why did the person get beat up along the road? So we want to make the whole road safer. So that's the that's where we're coming from on this podcast. Far too often, we've seen Good Samaritans whose hearts were in the right place, but because they weren't also helping with their smarts, they actually ended up causing harm. So we really want to bring both our, our faith and look for biblical understanding, as well as what can research and science teach us to be able to help us do this work better. Most often, it's these small acts of kindness that make the biggest differences in the lives of our neighbors. And so on the podcast, we explore those small ways to get involved, those tangible, practical, concrete ways of what it means to love our neighbors. You can find Better Samaritan anywhere you get podcasts. So back, you know, going back in time, though, before they left for the new world, they had this idea that we're going to build a Puritan colony. They were getting away from English persecution. Winthrop preaches this sermon. It's the last thing you hear as you leave 
Europe. And the sermon is, again, originally titled A Model of Christian Charity. And the sermon really is about using your money to help others. It's kind of a strange bon voyage sermon. You know, it's not a sermon on hope or safety for travels or vision for the future, although it is a little bit that last one. It's, it's just different. But in a lot of ways, this idea of a charitable Christian nation was the goal of people who could be charitable with their money, of people who could give from their own pockets, who would serve and go out of their way to extend themselves. That was the kind of people and ideals Winthrop knew they needed to found Massachusetts and to build a Puritan colony, a Christian nation. And I think we could use a lot of these same ideas today if we really want America to be that city on a hill that they dreamed up that at its best America can be. I think we need to learn that charity and love and service that I think has been forgotten over time. God Almighty in His most holy and wise providence has set up the condition of society as it has been in all times that some must be rich and some poor. Some will be high and eminent in power and dignity, while others low and living as servants. The reasons for this are, first, it matches the standard set with the rest of the world. For he is delighted to show the glory of his wisdom in the variety and differences of the creatures he created. And there is glory in his power in ordering all these differences for the preservation and good of all and the glory of his greatness, just as it is the glory of princes to have many generals, so this great king God will have many servants. He counts himself honored in giving his gifts from man to man, than if he did the work by his own immediate hands. This also gives him more opportunities to display the work of his spirit, first upon the wicked in moderating and restraining them, so that the rich and mighty should not eat up the poor. And the poor and despised do not rise up against and consume everything around them. Secondly, in the regenerated souls, by exercising his graces in them as he has done in all the great ones. He does this through their love, mercy, gentleness, temperance, etc., and in the poor and through their faith, patience, and obedience. Third, that every man might have a need for others, and from here they might be all knit closely together in the bonds of brotherly affection. From here it appears plainly that no man is made more honorable than another, and no one is made more wealthy out of any particular and singular aspect of himself. But it is for the glory of his Creator and the common good of other men. Therefore, God still reserves the property of these gifts to himself, as Ezekiel 16.17. Here, he calls their wealth his gold and his silver, and Proverbs 3.9, he claims their service as his due. Honor the Lord with your riches. All men are, by divine providence, ranked into two sorts, rich and poor. Under the rich are those that are able to live comfortably by their own means and who can improve the lives of others. And all others are poor according to their lot in life. There are two rules which we are to walk in together, justice and mercy. 
These are always separated in their actions and in their motivation. Yet, they may both agree in the same way at times. For sometimes, there may be an opportunity of showing mercy to a rich man in some sudden danger or distress, and also of doing justice to a poor man in regard to some particular rule or law. From Matthew 7.12, Whatever you would have men do to you. This was practiced by Abraham and Lot in entertaining the angels and the old man of Gibeah. This law of the gospel shows us a difference of seasons and when it is right to do something. There is a time when a Christian must sell all and give to the poor, as they did in the apostles' times. There is a time also when Christians, though they have not given all yet, must give beyond their ability as they did in Macedonia, 2 Corinthians 8. Likewise, in moments of crisis in the community, they may be called for extraordinary generosity. Lastly, when there is no other way by which our Christian brother may be relieved in his distress, we must help him beyond our ability rather than tempt God by requiring him to intervene by miraculous or extraordinary means. This duty of mercy can be lived out in a few practices, giving, lending, and forgiving of debt. But there is a question. What rule should a man follow in giving respect to how much? The answer, if the time and days are ordinary, then he is to give out of his abundance. Let him lay aside just as God has blessed him, if the time and days are special, he must be ruled by them, knowing that a man cannot likely do too much if he puts himself and his family under a situation where they lack a comfortable subsistence. But there is an objection. A man must lay up for his children and posterity. Fathers lay up for their future and their children, and he is worse than an infidel, that doesn't provide for his own? The answer, for the first part, it is plain that it is being spoken of during times that are ordinary and the usual course of fathers and should not extend to times and days that are extraordinary. For in another place, the apostle speaks against those who walk in excess. And it is without question that he is worse than an infidel who, through his own laziness and pleasure-seeking, will neglect to provide for his family. Objection. The wise man's eyes are in his head, says Solomon, and foresees the plague. Therefore, he must forecast and lay up against evil times when he or his may stand in need of all that he can gather. Answer. This very argument Solomon used is meant to persuade us to live generously. Ecclesiastes 11. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you do not know what evil may come upon the land. Luke 16.9. You ask, how will this be? Very well. First, he that gives to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him, even in his life, a hundredfold to him or his. 
The righteous is ever merciful and lends, and his seed enjoys the blessing. And besides, we know what advantage it will be to us in the day we must give account when many such witnesses will stand up for us to witness to the good use of our talents. And I know of those who fight against the idea of laying up for the time to come, whether they hold that to be gospel, as in Matthew 6.19, do not lay for yourselves treasures upon earth, etc., If they do acknowledge it, how much do they let it affect them? They see it as only for those primitive times of the early church. But let us consider the reason our Savior gives us this command. The first is that our treasures are subject to the moth, the rust, the thief. Secondly, they will steal away the heart. Where the treasure is, there will your heart be also. The reasons are both similarly powerful. Therefore, the command must be general and even to this day. Now, if there is no special need, it is not only legal, but necessary to lay it up, just as Joseph did, to have it ready for such times as the Lord, whose stewards we are of our belongings, will call for them from us. Christ gives us an instance of the first, when he sent his disciples for the donkey, and bid them answer the owner, the Lord has need of him. So, when the tabernacle was to be built, he sent to his people the call for their silver and gold, jewels and precious stones, and yielded no other reason but that it was for his work. When Elijah goes to the widow of Sarepta and finds her preparing to make ready for her final meal for herself and family, he bids her first to provide for him. He challenges that she give God's part first before she must serve her own family. All these teach us that the Lord is pleased to call for his own use anything we have our own interest that we have must step aside until his uses are served. For the other, we do not need to look further than that of 1 John 3.17. He who has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his compassion for him, how then does the love of God dwell in him? Which brings us to this conclusion— If your brother is in need and you can help him, you do not need to doubt what you should do. If you love God, you must help him. The question, what is the rule to follow when lending? The answer, you must check whether your brother has present or future ways of repaying you. And if there are no ways to repay, you must give to him according to his need rather than lend to him as he requests. If he has a means of repaying you, then you are to look at him not as an act of mercy, but as a business transaction. For this allows you to walk by the rule of justice. But if his means of repaying you are only probable or possible, then he is an object of your mercy." You must lend to him even though there is danger of losing your money. Deuteronomy 15, 7-8 If any of your brethren are poor, 
you will lend him what is needed. That men might not give up his duty, he tells them that even if the year of Jubilee is at hand, when he must clear the debt, if he were not able to repay it before, he must still lend it to him, and do so cheerfully. It must not grieve you to give to him, he says. And because some might say, well, why should I impoverish myself and my family, he adds, with all your work for our Savior, Matthew 5.42, from him that would borrow from you, do not turn them away. The question, what rule must we follow in forgiving a debt? The answer, whether you lend by the way of business or in charity, if he has nothing to pay you, then you must forgive it, except in cases where you have a deposit or a pledge. Deuteronomy 15.1-2 Every seventh year, the creditor was to end the payments from his brother if he were poor, as it appears in verse 4, except when there are no poor with you. In all these and similar cases, Christ gives a general rule. Matthew 7.12 Whatever you would have men do to you, do it to them. The question, what rule must we follow and walk by when the community is in danger or crisis? The answer, the same rule as before, but with more generosity towards others and less respect towards ourselves and our own rights. In the early church, they sold all, had all things in common, and no man said that which he possessed was his own. Likewise, in their return out of captivity, because the work was great for the restoration of Israel and the danger of enemies was common to all, Nehemiah directs the Jews to generosity and a willingness in forgiving the debts of their brothers. They were asked to give generously to those in need and not demand the dues that may have been owed to them. In the same way, some of our forefathers acted during times of persecution in England, and so have many of the faithful in other churches. So we honor them for their charity. And it is to be observed that both in scriptures and later stories of the churches, that Christians are most bountiful to the poorest saints, especially in extraordinary times and seasons. And God has left them highly commended to future generations, those like Zacchaeus, Cornelius, Dorcas, Bishop Hooper, the Cutler of Brussels, and so many others we look up to who have shown us how to be generous. Look again at how Scripture gives no caution to restrain any from being overly generous in this way. But all men are to be generous and cheerful while practicing and believing in sweeter promises. Just to show one instance, Isaiah 58, 6-9. Isn't this the fast that I have chosen to break the bonds of wickedness? To take off the heavy burdens? To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? to deal your bread to the hungry, and to bring the poor that wander into your house. And when you see the naked, to cover them, 
And then will your light break out as the morning and your health will recover quickly. Your righteousness will go before God and the glory of the Lord will embrace you. Then you will call and the Lord will answer you. And from Chronicles 2.10, If you pour out your soul to the hungry, then will your light spring out in darkness, and the Lord will guide you continually. And he will satisfy your soul in the drought and make your bones fat. You will be like a watered garden. On the contrary, the most heavy of curses are saved for those who did not help God's people. Judges 5.23 Curse you, Marosh, because they did not come to help the Lord. He who shuts his ears from hearing the cry of the poor, he will cry and will not be heard. Matthew 25 Go cursed into everlasting fire, for I was hungry and you fed me not. 2 Corinthians 9.6 He that sows sparingly will reap sparingly. The apostle tells us that this love is the fulfilling of the law. It is not enough to love your brother and do nothing else. But we know that what one truly sets their soul to, then their actions will show it. But the way to draw men to the works of mercy is not to win them over with logical arguments, but from the goodness or necessity of the work. Although these arguments may enforce a rational mind to some present acts of mercy, as we see frequently in life, yet it cannot create a habit in the soul that will be quick to act in all circumstances. But if we lay our love for our brothers deep into our hearts and treasure this way of living, then the result of that action will be timely and bountiful. There is no body that doesn't consist of different parts knitted together. And this gives the body its perfection, because it makes each part so connected to others that they mutually work together. They are both bound together in strength and illness, in pleasure and in pain. And this is true in the most perfect of all bodies, Christ and his church. And they are one body. The different parts of this body were considered a part before they were united. They were disproportionate and disorderly. They were made up of contrary and enemy elements, fighting against one another. But when Christ comes and by his spirit and love knits all these parts to himself and each part to the other, it will become the most perfect and best proportioned body in the world. Ephesians 4, 15-16 Christ, by whom all the body is knit together, by every joint with his power. It is a glorious body, without spot or wrinkle. The connecting joints here are Christ, or his love, for Christ is love. 1 John 4.8 So, the definition of love is found. Love is the bond of perfection. From here, we may think about some conclusions. First of all, True Christians are of one body in Christ, 1 Corinthians 12. You are the body of Christ and members of it. All the parts of this body being united are connected in a special relationship, for each part brings strength and weaknesses. 
Each part has joy and sorrow, scar and woe. If one member suffers, all suffer with it. And if one is honored, all rejoice with it. Secondly, the joints of this body knit together are love. Third, no body can be perfect which lacks its proper connecting joints. Christ's body cannot be perfect when it lacks love. This sensitivity and sympathy for each other's conditions will necessarily infuse into each of us a native desire to strengthen, defend, preserve, and comfort the other. To insist a little on this conclusion is the product of the previous statements. 1 John 3.16 We must lay down our lives for the brethren. Galatians 6.2 Bear with one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For examples of this, we have first our Savior who, out of his good will in obedience to his Father, became a part of this body and its head. He was knit with it in the bond of love and found such a sensitivity for our weaknesses and sorrows that he willingly yielded himself to death so that he may ease the weakness of the rest of his body and so healed the body's sorrows. From a similar sympathy for the parts of the body, the apostles and many thousands of the saints lay down their lives for Christ. And we may see this similar love in the members of this body among themselves. Romans 9, Paul could have been content to have been separated from Christ if the Jews might not be cut off from the body. It is very noteworthy what he says of this love and desire for the members of the body. Who is weak, says he, and I am not weak? Who is offended, and I burnt not? And again, 2 Corinthians 7.13. Therefore, we are comforted because you were comforted. Of Epaphroditus, he says, Philippians 2.25-30, that he didn't regard his own life to serve him. So Phoebe and others are called the servants of the church. Now it is apparent that they didn't serve for wages or by coercion, but out of love. Love like this we will find in the histories of the church throughout all ages. The sweet symphony of affections which was in the members of this body towards one another. Their cheerfulness in serving and suffering together. How generous they were without complaining, suffering without grudges, and helpful without tearing down. And all from here because they had a fervent love amongst them, which only makes the practice of mercy constant and easy. The next consideration is how this love comes to be. Adam, in his first estate, was a perfect model of mankind in all their generations. But Adam, himself torn from his Creator, and tore all his children from each other, now it is that every man is born with this principle in him, to love and seek himself only. And so a man continues until Christ comes and takes possession of the soul and infuses another principle, to show love to God and our brother. And this love for the brother receives continual supply from Christ. 
as the head and root by which the believer is united gets power over the soul. So, little by little, he expels the former selfish love. 1 John 4, 7 Love comes of God, and everyone that loves is born of God. So that this love is the fruit of the new birth, and none can have it but the new creature. Now, when this quality is formed in the souls of men, it works like the spirit upon the dry bones. Ezekiel 37.7 Bone came to bone. It gathers together the scattered bones, or perfect old man Adam, and knits them into one body again in Christ, where a man becomes a living soul. The third thing to consider is how to put this love into practice. It is twofold, inward and outward. The outward has been handled in the beginning of this sermon, but for the inward love, the foundation of love is a feeling of some similarity in the things loved to themselves. This is the reason why the Lord loves the creature, so far as it has any of his image in it. He loves his elect because they are like himself, and he beholds them in his beloved Son. So a mother loves her child because she thoroughly conceives a resemblance of herself in it. So it is between the members of Christ. Each discerns by the work of the Spirit his own image and resemblance in another, and therefore cannot but love him as he loves himself. Now, when the soul, which is social in nature, finds anything similar to itself, it is like Adam when Eve was brought to him. She must be one with himself. This is flesh of my flesh, he says, and bone of my bone. So the soul conceives a great delight in it, and therefore she desires nearness and time with it. She has a great desire to do it good and receive such joy in it. And the soul fears the miscarriage of her beloved, and she carries it in the inmost treasure chest of her heart. She will not endure that it would lack any good which she can give it. If by circumstances she is withdrawn from the company of it, she is still looking towards the place where she left her beloved. If she hears it groan, she will rush to be with it. If she finds it sad and inconsolable, she sighs and moans with it. She has no such joy as to see her beloved merry and thriving. If she sees it wronged, she cannot hear it without passion. She sets no boundaries to her affections, nor has any thought of reward. She finds repayment enough in the exercise of her love towards it. We may see this acted in the life of Jonathan and David. Jonathan was a valiant man imbued with the spirit of love. As soon as he discovered the same spirit in David, he had his heart knit to him by this joint of love, so that it is said he loved him as his own soul. His father's kingdom was not precious to him as his beloved David. David will have it with all his heart. He desires no more but that he may be near to him to rejoice in his good. 
He chooses to converse with him in the wilderness, even at the hazard of his own life, rather than be with the great servants in his father's palace. When he sees danger coming for David, he spares neither pain nor danger to warn him of it. When injury was offered to his beloved David, he would not bear it, even though it came from his own father. And when they must part for a season, they thought their hearts would break for sorrow, but their affections found vent by the abundance of tears. Other examples might be brought to show the nature of this affection, such as Ruth and Naomi. But this truth is clear enough. If any will object that it is not possible that love will be given or upheld without hope of return, it is granted. But that is not our reason, for this love is always under reward. It never gives, but it always receives with advantage. From the members of the same body, love and affection are reciprocated in an equal and sweet kind of way. Nothing yields more pleasure and joy to the soul than when it finds something it may love passionately. For to love and live, beloved, is the soul's paradise, both here and in heaven. In the state of wedlock, there are so many comforts that are learned out of the troubles of that condition. Many have tried, but I doubt any can point to a greater joy in marriage than the sweetness of mutual love. For the former, consideration, for the former considerations arise these conclusions. First, This love among Christians is a real thing, not imaginary. Secondly, this love is absolutely necessary to the being of the body of Christ, just as the tendons of a natural body are to the being of that body. Third, this love has a divine spiritual nature. It is free, active, strong, courageous, and permanent. This helps us to resemble the virtues of our Heavenly Father. Fourth, it rests in the love and welfare of its beloved. That which the Holy Spirit has left recorded, 1 Corinthians 13, gives an excellent answer as to what love is. It is best for every true member of this lovely body of the Lord Jesus to work upon their hearts by prayer and meditation on how to act on this grace. Over time, Christ will be formed in them, and they in him, and all in each other, knit together in this bond of love. It is best now to make some application of this discourse. First, for the people. We are a company professing ourselves fellow members of Christ. Though we may be absent from each other by many miles, and our work may bring us far from each other, Yet we should still hold ourselves knit together by this bond of love and live in the practice of it. Otherwise, how will we feel the comfort and presence of Christ? This was famous in the practice of the Christians in earlier times. It was testified of the Waldenses from the mouth of one of their enemies, Aeneas Silvius, who said they loved any of their own faith even before they had met them. Second, For the weak we have at hand, we are to seek out a place of cohabitation and fellowship under a due form of government, both civil and ecclesiastical. 
In such cases as this, the care of this public must hold sway over all private respects. By this, not only conscience, but civil policy will bind us together. For it is a true rule that no one can survive the ruin of society. Third, the goal of this work is to improve our lives to do more service to the Lord. The encouragement and increase of the body of Christ, which we are all members of, so that ourselves and children may be better preserved from the common corruptions of this evil world and that the body of Christ may serve the Lord and work out our salvation under the power and purity of his holy commands. Fourth, for the method which we must use to do this, they are twofold, a cooperation with the work and the goal we aim at. These two things are extraordinary. The work of setting up a new colony and the goal of preserving and building up Christ's church. Therefore, we must not content ourselves with the usual and ordinary ways of doing things. Whatever things we did or should have done while we lived in England, the same things we must do, but even more so, where we are going. We must do what is expected of a church and then make so much more our daily habit. For example, in this duty of love, we must love brotherly without any pretenses. We must love one another with a pure heart passionately. We must bear one another's burdens. We must not look only on our own things, but also on the things of our brothers. And we must not think that the Lord will bear with our failures as he does from those whom we are leaving. For we have a bond of marriage between him and us, and he has taken us to be his. This will make him the more jealous of our love and obedience. So he tells the people of Israel, I have only known you of all the families of the earth. For this reason, I will punish you for your transgressions. The Lord will be sanctified in them that come near to him. We know that there were many that corrupted the service of the Lord. Some set up altars before his own, and others offered both strange fire and strange sacrifices. Yet there came no fire from heaven or other sudden judgment upon them, as it did upon Nadab and Abihu. Don't mistake this as God-tolerating sin, but as not accepting you as part of his own, worthy of being punished. When God gives a special commission, he looks to have it followed exactly. When he gave Saul a commission to destroy the Amalek, he gave him a certain way he wanted it done. And because he failed in one of these commands, and that upon an arguably fair pretense, it lost him the kingdom. This would have been his reward if he had observed his mission. So stands the cause between God and us. We are entered into a covenant with him for this work. We have taken out a commission. The Lord has given us leave to draw our own rules. We have professed to go out for these good reasons. We have sought his favor and blessing. Now, if the Lord is pleased to hear us and bring us in peace to the place we desire— Then has he ratified this covenant and sealed our commission. 
he will expect a strict performance of the rules we have set out. But if we neglect the observation of these rules which are for the goals we have proposed, then we break fellowship with our God. If we fall and embrace this present world and do not crucify our carnal intentions, instead of seeking great things for ourselves and our posterity in God, then the Lord will surely break out in wrath against us. He will be rid of such a people. He will make us know the price of breaking his covenant. Now, the only way to avoid this shipwreck and to provide for our posterity is to follow the counsel of Micah. That is to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. For this end, we must be united in this work, as if we were one man. We must entertain each other in brotherly affection. We must be willing to forget our desires for the supply of others' necessities. We must conduct business together in all meekness, gentleness, patience, and generosity. We must delight in each other, make others' conditions our own. We should rejoice together, mourn together, labor, and suffer together, always having before our eyes our commission and community in the work. We are members of the same body. So we must keep the unity of the body in the bond of peace. If we do, the Lord will be our God and will delight to dwell with us as his own people. And he will command a blessing upon us in all our ways so that we will see much more of his wisdom, power, goodness, and truth than we have ever known. We will find that the God of Israel is among us. When ten of us will be able to resist a thousand of our enemies, and when he will make us a praise and glory that men will say of succeeding colonies, may the Lord make us like those of New England. For we must consider that we will be as a city on a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. So that if we deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken and cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we will be made a cautionary tale and a byword throughout the world. We will open the mouths of enemies to speak evil of the ways of God and all other Christians. We will shame the faces of many of God's worthy servants and cause their prayers to be turned into curses upon us till we are consumed out of the good land where we are going. Let us end this sermon with the exhortation of Moses. Moses, the faithful servant of the Lord in his last farewell to Israel, Deuteronomy 30. Beloved, there is now set before us life and death, good and evil. Here we are commanded this day to love the Lord our God and to love one another. We are to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his ordinance and his laws and follow the points of our covenant with him so that we may live and be multiplied and that the Lord our God may bless us in the land we are going to possess. But if our hearts turn away, so that we do not obey, but are seduced to worship other gods with our pleasure and profits, then it is declared from us this day forward, we will surely perish 
out of the good land that we are passing over this vast sea to possess. Therefore, let us choose life that we and our children may live by obeying his voice and clinging to him, for he is our life and our prosperity. The famous line from the sermon that people still talk about today is, quote, a city on a hill. But what was the city on a hill? What was it known for? It is supposed to be known for its love and charity. It was known for being what Paul called us to be, a unified group. It was supposed to be a truly Christian nation. And that was the whole world, when they saw it really done the right way, they wouldn't want to emulate that more than anything else about America. And they made a covenant and they pledged themselves to it. They even used this line in there that says, you know, if we don't, if we stray from this God, then withhold your grace and blessing on us because we chose something false over you. I mean, they're dead serious as they leave for the new world about making this their goal and about glorying God in it. 150 years before the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution, the people in America heading out there to start it promised to make a colony that would shine with God's love to the world. And I think that more than anything during these times as we think about America, and again, if you live in another country, what your country needs to be too, we all need to move towards this idea of being a loving, charitable, Christ-like nation that is unified behind the idea of loving others and extending ourselves and, and surrendering ourselves to what God has called us to be. And with the seriousness that we say to God, God, if we choose something false, then withhold your blessing from us because we chose something false over you. Hey, we got to pick a winner for our Brian Wolf Mueller book giveaway. We had Brian Wolf Mueller on last week's episode about Martin Luther, and he was kind enough to offer a free giveaway of one of his recent books, A Martyr's Faith in a Faithless World. We asked everyone to share the Revive Thoughts podcast to enter to win, and we have put all of the names into a random name picker, and Kara Johnson was the winner. Kara, we will get in contact with you soon to get an address to mail that book to. Thanks, everyone, who shared. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Chris Stern of The Truth Podcast. If you like today's episode, check out our website at revivethoughts.com. There you can find the transcript for this episode and all of our episodes. We know we have a lot of new listeners, people who have been coming to the show as of recent times, who we really want to recommend to you that you listen and go back and check out earlier episodes of the show that we are doing here. Uh, we're on our 60-something episode pretty much right now, and we've done deep dives and other things. And it's not that you have to listen to those other sermons to understand what we're doing. I don't think you need to listen to all 60 to understand but I definitely think as we go in time, we kind of grow on the knowledge that we've been accumulating together. And I think it will help you to understand and enjoy the show. I also think you will learn an a lot doing that. So if you're new to the show and you haven't gone back and check out some of those early sermons, make sure you go listen to George Mueller and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Hudson Taylor and some of those guys. I think there's a lot yeah. of wisdom and, and, and knowledge to be gained that you will enjoy. We also highly recommend subscribe to Revive Divas if you haven't already. Give that show a listen and hear from great preachers every single day for two to three minutes. A perfect, I tell you, man, I listen to it in my car on the way to work every single day and I love it. Uh, please give this episode a share and we hope you guys all have a wonderful Independence Day. And if you're listening to this after that, we hope you have a wonderful day all the same. This is Troy and Joel and this is Revive Thoughts. Hey.
the Better Samaritan podcast, where we're learning how to love our neighbors well in a world filled with injustice and pain. Join me, Kent Annan, and Jamie Aiton, my co-host and colleague at the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, as we interview experts with insight on learning to do good better.